Hey listeners, it's Tavia, co-host of the Book Club Girl podcast, here to invite you to a special virtual event to celebrate the end of our very long season one. And I'm Eliza. Can you believe it? Season one started in November of 2019. I don't know about you, but I am ready to kick back and take it all in. Heck yeah. On June 23rd, we're hosting an online event featuring six of our favorite authors. We'll be joined by two guests from season one, Kate Quinn and Meg Cabot. Eliza, do you remember how much fun we had interviewing them? Both of those were really standout conversations to me. They were so much fun. Plus, we'll talk to two authors who have new books coming out while we're on break, Vanessa Riley and Alexis Daria. I have heard awesome things about their books. Yeah, me too. And two authors who we can't wait to have on the show in season two, Lucy Foley, author of the blockbuster bestseller, The Guest List, and Wiley Cash, author of the beloved A Land More Kind Than Home. It's going to be so fun. Grab your book club and a bottle of wine and register for this free event at bookclubgirl.com slash events. There will be door prizes and a sneak preview of season two of the Book Club Girl podcast. I hear the door prize is going to be a set of noise-canceling headphones. (gasps) Whoa, good intel. Right? So don't forget, register at bookclubgirl.com slash events. We'll see you there on June 23rd. See you there. Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors and you, our listeners, get to ask the questions. I'm Tavia Kowalchuk and whoops, we did it again. It's another surprise episode with one of our favorite authors. The book we'll be discussing today is a spy novel. I'm totally sure that I've read a novel with spies in it, although right now the only one that I can remember is the Harry Potter series (laughs) and I'm thinking of Snape. That's like the best I could do right now. I'm not sure anyone's ever (laughs) categorized the Harry Potter books as spy novels before. It's a really big stretch. (laughs) I'm Eliza Rosenberry, and I actually just read a sort of spy novel. It's called Imposter Syndrome by Kathy Wang, who we've actually had on the show before to talk about her first novel, Family Trust. Yeah. Her new book, Imposter Syndrome, is about what if Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, what if she was a Russian spy? So it's like this tech CEO is actually a Russian spy and is asked to like sneak data from her tech company to the Russians. It's a great book. It's really fun. I love it. Me and too. I love Kathy Wang. She's so great. On today's show, two sisters torn apart by the Cold War. When one is in danger, how far will the other go to bring her to safety? We'll be listening to the historical spy novel, Our Woman in Moscow, by the New York Times bestselling author, Beatrice Williams. And in just a bit, we'll be joined by Cassandra Campbell, who performed part of the audiobook. So cool. Isn't that cool? Our first audiobook narrator guest. We so enjoyed having Beatrice on the show as one of our first ever podcast guests back in 2019. And when we heard she had a new novel coming out, we wanted to share it with you because her books are just so perfect for book clubs. But we also wanted to do something special. So instead of our usual book discussion and author conversation, we're giving you nearly a whole half hour of the Our Woman in Moscow audiobook to dive into before the book even goes on sale. I mean... I'm so excited. I can't wait to listen. Yeah. Yeah. And the beginning of the book is so good. And now we present to you Our Woman in Moscow, Abridged. Twin sisters, Ruth and Iris, are more different than you'd expect. 
They argue as much as they are devoted to each other. After their parents' death, they moved to Italy to live with their older brother, who is working at the U.S. Embassy in Rome. While they are there, Iris, the shy, less obviously attractive sister, falls in love with Sasha Digby, a hardworking diplomat from the English Embassy. When war breaks out in 1940, Ruth makes plans for the two sisters to flee quickly back to the States. Iris refuses to go, quickly marrying Sasha instead. She starts a life with him, eventually moving to England and bearing him children. Then, in 1948, the whole Digby family disappears, leaving those left behind to speculate if Sasha's idealism hadn't led them to defect to the Soviet Union. Four years later, Ruth receives a postcard from her twin sister, which she understands as a cryptic cry for help. Pulling the strings that she's developed through her career running an international modeling agency, Ruth soon finds herself on a plane headed to the USSR to visit her sister. She's accompanied by Sumner Fox, a CIA agent posing as her husband. With the KGB surveilling them everywhere they go, even in their hotel room, Ruth can only play her part in the scheme and trust Sumner, her partner in espionage, to ensure their plan works. Today, we're joined by Cassandra Campbell, who performed Ruth in the audiobook of Our Woman in Moscow by Beatrice Williams, which is on sale June 1st. Cassandra, welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast. We are so happy you're able to join us. You are our first audiobook performer as a guest. Wow. Well, it's my honor to be here. Thank you for having me. So Cassandra, as Tavi mentioned, you are an audiobook narrator. Have you performed other novels by Beatrice Williams? I have. And I actually tweeted with her to say how flattered I am to get to do a sort of a body of her work because I'm a big fan of her writing. The Golden Hour and this one. So yes. <laughs> what was your experience like recording Our Woman in Moscow? I had so much fun recording this because... As a writer, she has such a strong sense of voice. And this character, Ruth McAllister, she really captures the feeling of the time period and navigates that so well. And there's a kind of jaunty quality to the writing and to the character that's just so much fun to play. It was one of the books where... I didn't want to leave the booth and I was so energized by performing it because first of all, it's a great story, but also just the language is so rich. I love your description of this book as jaunty. That's such yeah. a good word for it. Yeah. What was your favorite scene to perform from Our Woman in Moscow? Oh, that's a good question. Of course, I love the Rome stuff because I lived in Europe. I lived in Florence. And so I love all things Italian. So I loved being there. And she, you know, the descriptions of the architecture and the, the sense of place. And I love that in Moscow too, like the feeling of being watched in every location. So it's hard to say what was my favorite, but those are kind of impressions that I got left with of like her world building, which really transports you into the place. I love that. I agree. You know, we are such big fans of Beatrice on this podcast. I always felt like one of the strongest parts of Beatrice's novels is the dialogue. But she also captures like New York in the 50s and being a woman, right, a professional woman during that time period. She does that so well. But also like her research is so good. 
she really puts you in the place in a way that is believable and intricate. And she obviously knows, she's obviously dug into the history of it. So yeah, it's just a great ride. Well, we are lucky as listeners and Beatrice is lucky as an author to have you performing one of the characters in her new novel, Our Woman in Moscow. Thank you so much for jumping on to share your experiences performing Our Woman in Moscow. It's been such a treat to have you on the show, Cassandra. Oh, it's my great pleasure. I mean, when you got in touch with me, I was like, oh, this is a book I am dying to talk about. So yeah, thank you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. And now for your listening enjoyment, we give you Cassandra Campbell and her colleague Nicola Barber performing the first 25 minutes of the new novel by Beatrice Williams, Our Woman in Moscow. Iris. Late March, 1940, Rome, Italy. The woman flailed against the giant who held her against his ribs. His hands snatched at her waist and her naked thigh with such force, his fingers sank into the tender flesh. How she fought him. With one hand, she pushed his head from her breast. Her curls flew into the air. But she didn't stand a chance, did she? Not a chance in the world against all that bulging muscle, all that solid, masculine bone. Iris couldn't strip her gaze away. She stood hypnotized before the white limbs, the living skin, the long curling ropes of hair, the robes that fell from waist and hip and shoulder. If she reached out to touch the marble, she would surely find it warm beneath her fingers. She'd feel the thrum of emotion, fear, desire, revulsion, passion, triumph, inside her own pulse. Once a week, she visited the gallery, sometimes twice, and she couldn't decide whether it was hatred or rapture that drew her back to this particular statue. Whether she was mesmerized by the beauty of the human shapes, the struggling Proserpina, the mighty Pluto, whether she was repulsed by the violence, by Proserpina's helpless struggle, whether she was ashamed because she couldn't stop staring into this intimate, brutal act. She wanted to stop it somehow, to wrest Proserpina from Pluto's arms. But sometimes she caught herself in Pluto's thoughts, so consumed by lust for this tender flesh that he couldn't let her go. He couldn't survive without Proserpina's warmth in his cold, dark underworld, even though she hated him. Some other visitors trickled around her. Iris didn't really notice them. That was why she visited in the middle of the week or on a rainy afternoon, so there weren't as many people around to witness her in her trance, or to wonder why the small, young American virgin couldn't turn away from that riot of licentious marble. Today was a Tuesday, and a delicate spring rain pattered on the windows. Also, there was a war on, didn't you know? Only Americans went on vacations anymore, and even Americans weren't exactly thick on the ground. So nobody bothered Iris, and Iris didn't bother anybody, and when at last she broke the trance and turned to leave the gallery, she almost missed the bright blonde head studying the rape of Proserpina from the other side. Almost, but not quite. You couldn't really miss a mane like that, especially in Italy, sleek and gold, propped up high on a pink neck, 
its pink ears tucked neatly back. Iris couldn't see the rest of him very well, hidden on the other side of all that writhing stone. And anyway, she was on her way out and pretending not to look. All she could make out was a tall suit of dark blue and a hand shoved in a trouser pocket before she passed out of the room. That was all, a glimpse of a golden head and a blue suit. So why did Iris feel as if she'd lost something precious as she stood before another sinuous Bernini in the next room? A maiden who held the radiant sun in her hand as some invisible force pulled away the drapery that covered her. He was just a stranger in a museum. She was never going to see him again anyway. But as Iris moved from room to magnificent room, she did see him again, and again. Well, maybe that was to be expected. They were floating down the same river after all, following the same prescribed path around the ground floor of the Villa Borghese, taking in the masterpieces one by one. That head bobbed in and out, moving above the little clusters of other visitors. And Iris now saw the body it was connected to, tall and lean and long-armed. The beautiful tailoring of his blue suit made the most of his rangy shoulders. When he stopped to contemplate a painting or a statue or an ancient Roman bowl or the gorgeous decoration of the ceiling, he shoved his hands in his trouser pockets and tilted his head thoughtfully. Once, Iris passed him straight on when she left her room just as he was entering. She had just an instant to see his face, which was plain and no nonsense, a prominent brow over a pair of wide-set eyes, maybe 30 years old. So near as Iris could tell, he didn't notice her. But then she took care not to catch herself looking at him either. Were they playing a game or not? Oh, of course they weren't. It was all in her head, a silly lightning infatuation for a stranger. Iris stared at a David holding out the severed head of Goliath, the last room on the ground floor, and it was nearly four o'clock in the afternoon. A woman stood next to Iris's right shoulder, a man to her left. The woman stepped away, and for a minute or two, Iris and the man contemplated the painting in silence. We seem to be interested by the same pieces, the man said. Iris startled and looked to her side. The man with the golden hair. He stared straight ahead. He had a long, sharp nose and a firm jaw. Do we? Iris said. Pluto and Proserpina, he said, tactfully avoiding the word rape. Truth revealed by time, David and Goliath. Isn't everyone interested by those? They're the masterpieces. He nodded to the painting in front of them. You'd think the artist would model David after his own face if he were going to model himself at all. But actually, that's Caravaggio on the Goliath. Yes, I know. The man turned his head and looked at her sheepishly. Beneath those heavy brows, his eyes were very blue, almost ultramarine. Sorry, didn't mean to condescend. I was just trying to make conversation. He smiled. We've met, you know. Have we? Don't remember. He stuck out one enormous, bony hand. Sasha Digby, I work with your brother at the embassy. Oh, of course. She shook the hand. Party last month? At the ambassador's residence? You were there with Harry and your sister. Of course you don't remember. 
It was the end of the evening before I introduced myself. I guess we all had a little too much champagne. Iris tried to recall the party, but Mr. Digby was right. She had drunk a lot of champagne that night, and she wasn't used to it. Her memories of the evening were, well, kaleidoscopic was a nice way to put it. I'm awfully sorry, I should remember you. He laughed. Yes, I do stick out in a crowd, don't I? It's just that I don't usually have so much to drink. They kept refilling my glass when I wasn't looking. Oh, well, they do it on purpose. Without wine, there would be no diplomacy. Anyway, I should have introduced myself earlier. Why didn't you? Because I'm shy, Miss McAllister. No, you're not. Didn't you just walk up to me and introduce yourself? Only after spending an hour wandering around after you, working up the nerve. Oh, Iris said. Mr. Digby looked at his watch. Say, I'd ask you to coffee, but I've got a silly appointment coming up. Then you shouldn't be late. No, I can't, I'm afraid. But I'm glad I spotted you here. I mean, I'm not surprised to see you in a place like this. I knew there was something different about you. His ears were pink. A bright raspberry stain covered his cheekbones. I'm glad too, Mr. Digby, she said. Sasha. Sasha, I'm Iris. I know. He glanced again at his watch. I'm late, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be rude. Go, don't be late. You'll remember me at the next party? She shook his hand a second time. I certainly will. After Sasha Digby rushed off, Iris floated upstairs to the first floor. Not to be confused with the ground floor, this was Italy after all. Because marble was so extraordinarily heavy, you didn't find any mesmerizing Bernini statuary up there, just paintings and ancient Roman artifacts and some splendidly decorated rooms. Iris knew them all well, she came here often. A gallery like that was like an opium den for her, packed with pleasure and revelation. Today, however, she drifted from room to room and didn't notice a thing. Her heart skipped and raced. She was bubbling over with some giddy froth of emotion she hardly dared to name. It was like the way a child felt on Christmas Eve, if Christmas were a tall, golden-haired man who already knew your name, who thought you were different from the other girls, who'd spent an hour working up the nerve just to say hello. She stopped in front of a painting of a woman who held a small, perfect unicorn in her lap, like a cat. And she stared at that woman and thought, I know exactly how you feel. The rain lit up, sunshine lit the windows, the watery sunshine of springtime. Iris looked out onto the gardens below, the manicured hedges in their perfect symmetrical designs. She could almost smell the damp green scent of the dripping leaves, the wet gravel, the rich earth. A patch of blue hung above. Everything glittered, so new and promising. On a bench along one of the side paths sat a man and a woman, part hidden by the pattern of hedges. The man wore an overcoat and a fedora. The woman wore a raincoat and a plain, round black hat. They had crossed their legs, his right and her left, to form an intimate V. They seemed to be talking to each other even though they were staring straight ahead into the hedge across the path. The man was long and lean, and his suit was dark blue underneath his unbuttoned overcoat. 
Iris couldn't see his hair beneath that fedora, nor the color of his eyes or the shape of his nose. She couldn't even see the pinkness of his neck. But she saw his hands, folded on top of his thigh, bony and enormous. After a minute or two, the man rose and held out his hand to the woman, who took it and rose too. They walked off together, down the gravel path and out of sight, behind a line of plane trees. From the Borghese Gardens, it was a reasonably short walk down the grand, curving Via Vittorio Emanuel to the U.S. Embassy, where Iris's brother, Harry, worked, processing visas for desperate Jews, though never nearly enough. Farther down the road, and around a corner or two, Iris's twin sister, Ruth, was modeling dresses for some fashion magazine. Unlike Iris, Ruth was tall, blonde, and angular, as Aryan as they came, and she'd made quite a stir among the Italian houses since the two of them joined Harry in Rome last October. Ruth had said something over breakfast about the Spanish steps if the weather cleared, so they were probably setting up the cameras and the lights right now. Ruth told Iris she could come and watch if she wanted. Iris said sure, maybe. When Ruth turned away to sip her coffee, Iris rolled her eyes. But Iris had to go somewhere, the zing of the Villa Borghese had gone flat for her, and God knew she couldn't go walking around the gardens. With her luck, she'd run bang into Sasha Digby and his female companion. Maybe she'd find a cafe somewhere and order an espresso and take out her sketchbook. She marched out the entrance of the villa, nodded to the porter who recognized her, down the steps, clickety-clack. And no sooner did her foot hit the gravel than what do you know, a raindrop hit her smack on the nose. By the time she reached the traffic whizzing down the Via Pinchana, the rain had decided it meant business. Iris stopped to open her umbrella and imagined the photography crew at the Spanish steps rushing to pack up their equipment, while beautiful Ruth leapt for cover beneath a nearby awning. Iris didn't even notice the motorcycle tearing around the bend in the road until she stepped off the sidewalk to cross to the other side. Ruth, June 1952, New York City. To be clear, my dinner engagement with Aunt Vivian and Uncle Charlie already existed in my appointment book before Sumner Fox paid me a visit this afternoon, so it's not as if I've sought them out particularly to talk things over. It's a regular appointment, dinner at their apartment on Fifth Avenue on the second Thursday of the month assuming everybody's in town, not because we're especially close, but because none of us can figure out a way to break the habit without causing offense. Families, you know. I'm only five minutes late when I hurry into the lobby and wave hello to the doorman. He's got a thing for me, always lets me run straight up. But Aunt Vivian isn't amused. She kisses me on both cheeks and says something snide about the sliding morals of the young. That's rich coming from you, I reply. Uncle Charlie stands at the liquor cabinet mixing my martini. He's always glad to see me, even if he doesn't approve of career girls. He hands me the drink and asks if anything's the matter, because I'm looking a little pale. Oh, nothing your martinis can't fix, Uncle Charlie. I collapse on a chair and light a cigarette. Just an FBI agent turning up asking about Iris. Iris, 
the FBI. What the hell do they want with her after all these years? Ask your wife. The agent says they already spoke to Aunt Vivian. Vivian, what's this? Aunt Vivian flicks the ash from her cigarette. It's nothing, Charlie. I told them exactly what I imagine Ruth told them, nothing at all. There's been no word from Iris in four years. I can't imagine why they're looking into the whole mess again. Maybe they've found some trace of her, I said. Well, they're not going to find out anything new from you. I gaze across the room at the windows that overlook Central Park, where sunsets begun to gather in the skies above New Jersey. It's a funny thing, though. She sent me a postcard a week ago. Aunt Vivian nearly drops her glass. A postcard? From Iris? Claims to be, anyway. From where? Moscow. Uncle Charlie swears. I'll be damned. They defected. I knew it. Didn't I say he'd defect, the damn communist? What did the postcard say? Aunt Vivian asks calmly. You don't seem all that surprised. She shrugs. I rise and cross the room to the sofa where I flung my pocketbook. I rummage around until I find the postcard tucked inside. Dear Ruth, I read, things are awfully busy here in Moscow. We're expecting another baby in July. More soon, love always, Iris. That's strange, Aunt Vivian says. Strange, that's putting it mildly. I mean, it doesn't sound like Iris at all. She doesn't talk like that, let alone write like that. What did the FBI fellow say? I tucked the postcard back in my pocketbook. I didn't tell him. Uncle Charlie sputters into his scotch. You're not saying you lied to a federal investigator, are you, Ruth? Are you? I might have. I don't remember one way or another. Sure you don't, says Aunt Vivian. As your lawyer. Oh, shimmy off that high horse, Uncle Charlie. You'd have done the same. Iris and I may not be the closest of pals, Aunt Vivian snorts, but I'm no snitch, not even to my worst enemy. It's hardly snitching to tell the nice FBI man you've received a postcard from your sister in Moscow, says my aunt. Under the circumstances. Please, something's fishy, or he wouldn't have turned up now after all these years. Digby's gotten her into a mess of some kind, and I don't just mean having another baby. What kind of mess, demands my uncle. They've already defected, what more mess could there be? I dangle my glass at him. You know, these martinis are really terrific. I don't suppose you'll allow me another before dinner? When Uncle Charlie rises to refill the martini glass, Aunt Vivian sits back in her chair and drags from her cigarette. Odd about that postcard. Is she really having another baby, do you think? I suppose she must be, unless it's some kind of code. But why write something obviously false? I mean, they must have censors or something watching the mail. You know she has a terrible time having babies. I don't know why she allows that man near her anymore. 
Love finds a way, I guess. Aunt Vivian watches the movements of her husband's arms as he mixes and shakes at the liquor cabinet. He drinks, you know. Everybody drinks, Aunt Vivian. Maybe she's finally leaving him. Then why defect with him in the first place? I don't know. Tell me, why did they defect? You did stay with them in England that summer before they left, you and the girls. Aunt Vivian sits back in her chair and crosses her long legs. Never mind. Tell me about this FBI man. What's there to tell? He looks the part, if that's what you mean. Sumner Fox. Do you remember him, Uncle Charlie? He played football somewhere. Sumner Fox, Christ. The Sumner Fox? How many could there be? He hands me the glass. I licked the drops from the edges. He played fullback for Yale, mid-thirties, says Uncle Charlie. Then what happened? Flew torpedo bombers off a carrier in the Pacific. Crashed on an island somewhere and spent the rest of the war in a Japanese prison camp. Don't you read the newspapers? Only the news I like. Well, says Aunt Vivian, is he handsome? I throw up my hands. For the last time, not every girl needs a husband. For God's sake, look what it's done to you. No offense intended, Uncle Charlie. He settles in his chair and picks up a newspaper. None taken. Now, I forgot to mention that Aunt Vivian and Uncle Charlie have children of their own, three of them to be exact all of whom come tumbling into the dining room at the appointed hour and spoil our hard-won cynicism. Don't tell anyone, but I've always liked Tiny best. Pepper and Vivian are so goddamn exhausting and far too much like me. Tiny turned 13 a few weeks ago, and her personality's changing by the minute. She's always been a serious child, always worried about beggars and stray animals and the atom bomb, and now she spends all her time buried in school books and newspapers. At dinner, she's awfully quiet while her sisters yammer on about singing in the rain, which they've just seen for the ninth time, and how Pepper's going to be an actress when she grows up. Over dessert, I ask Tiny what's wrong. And she says she's been worried about the missing diplomats. Which missing diplomats, I ask? The Englishman, she tells me. Mr. Burgess and Mr. McLean, they've been gone a year now. Didn't you see the story in the Times? I don't know what she's talking about, of course, and I'm just drunk enough not to pay much attention when she tells me, what's a pair of British diplomats to me? Still, something bothers me about the incident, though I can't say what. Coming so adjacent to the postcard and the FBI visit, possibly. When I stagger home to my apartment in Sutton Place, I stop by the little grocery around the corner to buy the usual quart of milk, and at the last instant I pick up a newspaper, too. Mike, the doorman, nods as I swing through the revolving door. I collect my mail from the slot and climb the stairs as a form of exercise, as is my habit, in order to maintain my maidenly figure. Inside my apartment, I pour the milk into a glass and spread out the newspaper on the table. 
The story about the diplomats appears on page seven, below the fold. Still no word from missing British diplomats, runs the headline. A year has now passed since the disappearance of Mr. Guy Burgess and Mr. Donald McLean, both of the British Foreign Office, caused an international uproar, and the British government admitted yesterday there is still no definitive word on their fate. The two men were last seen boarding a pleasure cruise aboard the ship Falaise in the English Channel on Friday, May 25th of last year, and went ashore during a brief stop at the French port of St. Malo, at which passports are generally not checked, according to the French government. Clothing and personal effects of both men were discovered in their cabin when the schooner returned to port at Southampton the following Sunday morning, and the alarm was raised when Mr. McLean did not report to work as usual on Monday morning. His wife, Mrs. Melinda McLean, who was then expecting their third child in a matter of weeks, apparently saw nothing amiss and did not inform his superiors at the foreign office until... By now, my memory is jogged. Burgess and McLean, of course. What a fuss that was. I recall, now don't laugh. My first thought was one of pity for poor Mrs. McLean. At the time, it was perfectly clear to my dirty mind that the two missing diplomats had in fact run off together to liberate themselves from the disapproval of a Puritan world. A year later, though, other details strike me. I don't know. Maybe I didn't notice them before. For one thing, there's something odd about this business of the passports and the clothing and personal effects left inside the cabin of the good ship Falaise. Why not take them with you? And my God, what kind of monster skips out on two children and a wife so very pregnant as that? Unless he absolutely has to. Sex is lovely, all right, but surely McLean could not have been so deficient in basic decency, even if he was a diplomat. I fold the paper back up and finish the milk. And it's not until I wash the glass and return to the table that I turn my attention to the day's mail. I'm not much of a correspondent, I'm afraid, and I tend to receive few letters of a personal nature, just the usual brusque envelopes from banks and charities and insurance companies, the occasional missive from some government department of this or that, hardly the kind of communication you rip open with trembling fingers. So I'm surprised to discover a slim, light envelope tucked between the usual correspondence, marked Paravion on one side. I flip it over and find no return address, just my own name in beautiful handwriting and my own address. I don't think to look at the postmark before I open it. Tug out a single tissue-like sheet of airmail paper, fold it over once, and unfold it. A square black and white photograph falls out. Three children posing against a fence in what seems to be a zoo. I return to the letter itself and begin to read. Dearest Ruth, I'm so sorry not to have written sooner. The time has simply slipped away from me. I thought perhaps you might like to see how your sweet nephews and niece are growing, so I took this photo of the children at the local zoo. I'm writing to ask if you wouldn't mind coming out here to lend me a hand with the baby's arrival. 
I am so drained by the pregnancy, and as you remember, these ordeals are always difficult for me. I know you're busy with your own work, and I wouldn't ask if I didn't need your help so desperately. Your loving sister, Iris. P.S. Our apartment here reminds me so much of the one we shared in Rome all those years ago. Do you remember how happy we were then? I was just thinking of what you said to me that last day. Am I too late to admit that you were right? That was an audio excerpt from Our Woman in Moscow by Beatrice Williams, which goes on sale June 1st. To find out more about Beatrice's book and how to buy it, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and please do leave a review. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast, tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. Before we go, we'd like to thank Andrew Kaberlein, who pulls all the audiobook excerpts for the Book Club Girl podcast, and Beth Ives, who helped us convince Cassandra Campbell to come on our show. Until next time, I'm Tavia. And I'm Eliza. Happy listening. <laughs>